Hey, let me ask you uh, by show of hands, how many of you have read any part of, or at least if you haven't read it, you're familiar with uh, the, the Chronicles of Narnia? If you're familiar with that, would you raise your hand? So yeah, all over this room, and I'm, I'm confident there at Merriman Avenue as well. Uh, many of you know that uh, the Chronicles of Narnia is a series of books, Christian allegory, written by C.S. Lewis, um, in which Narnia is a barren land which is existing under the rule of the White Witch. Aslan, the king of Narnia, has been gone away for a long, long time, and Narnia is under the rule, this harsh rule of the White Witch. Now, what's terrible about Narnia uh, is that in that land, and while under the rule of this, uh, of this witch, it is always winter and yet never Christmas. Can you imagine such a thing? Always winter and never Christmas. And everyone in Narnia longs for the, the return of Aslan, the king. And if you're familiar at all with the story, you know that Aslan is a lion, not a human, but a lion. And the hope is that one day King Aslan will come back to Narnia. And they know that when he returns, he will defeat the White Witch and uh, he will remove and break the curse of winter and he will set all things right. Uh, in fact, in one uh, memorable scene from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, one of the stories in the Chronicle, uh, Mr. Beaver, and if you know the, the story, you'll recognize Mr. Beaver. Mr. Beaver promises uh, some frightened children this about the return of Aslan. He said, wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. Now, C.S. Lewis wrote the allegory to remind us that all of us live in Narnia. We really do. We live in a world where our king has been gone for a long time and under the, under the temporary and limited rule of the enemy of our souls, not a white witch, but of Satan himself. In this world, though we do have Christmas, it is. In terms of uh, the brokenness of our world, it is always winter. In our world, things often are not right. In the world that we live in, people get sick and die. In the world that we live in, children suffer. In the world that we live in, sometimes evil men and women seem to prosper while good men and women seem to suffer. Drugs enslave our children. Alcohol divides our homes. People who have strength and power, sometimes money or simply brute force, overpower and abuse weaker ones. 
in the Narnia that we live in, sometimes floods rise and tornadoes blow through and hurricanes destroy things and, and sometimes wars even ravage entire nations. That's the Narnia that we live in. But good news, one day our Aslan is coming, amen? Not a lion, but the lion of the tribe of Judah, our king is King Jesus. And I wanna say to you that wrong will be right when Jesus comes in sight. You know, the Bible promises us, doesn't it, over and over again that Jesus is coming. This is not a mystery, this is not an obscure teaching somewhere tucked away in a, in a relatively unknown passage of scripture. This is central to Christian orthodoxy. The Bible proclaims it over and over and over again. Jesus Christ is coming back to the earth. The Bible tells us that he's coming. In fact, the book of Revelation in our study, we began in chapter number one by noting verse seven of chapter one, which reminds us, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye shall see him. That's chapter one of Revelation. The last chapter of Revelation, chapter 22, in fact, the next to the last verse of Revelation, which makes it the next to the last verse of the Bible, says the same thing. Jesus himself speaking in that verse, behold, I come quickly, and he says, my reward is with me. And so the Bible says that Jesus is coming, not only in the book of Revelation, but in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus said it, Matthew 24, Jesus said uh, that uh, immediately after the days of the tribulation, the sky would be darkened and then you would see the sign of the Son of Man appearing. Uh, over and over the Bible says this, the book of Jude says that Jesus is coming with 10,000s of his saints. In fact, someone has estimated, and I don't know if this is absolutely correct, I haven't done the research, but uh, someone has estimated that for every single mention of the first advent of Jesus that you find in the Bible, every time the Bible said he would come the first time, for each of those instances, there are eight promises that he will come the second time. Now, whether that exact number is right or not, we can be sure that there are many, many more promises of his second coming than there ever were of his first coming. You should know it today. You should leave here knowing it. You should never forget it, and you should prepare for it. Whether you've come to Christ already or not, you should prepare for the fact that the Bible says one day Jesus Christ will come again. In fact, I want you to write that down in your, in your handbook today. This is our prophetic point. Remember, we're understanding revelation by understanding key, uh, eight key prophetic points. Today's key prophetic point is Jesus Christ will come to earth once again as King of kings and Lord of lords. And surely he will. Well, let's read about it in your text in Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse number one. Verse one says, And after these things, I heard a great voice of much or many people in heaven saying, Hallelujah, Salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments. For he hath judged the great whore, or the great harlot, which did corrupt the earth with her fornication, 
And he hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And again they said, Hallelujah. And her smoke rose up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And a voice came out of the throne saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, and you that fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude and the voice of many waters, the voice of mighty thunderings, saying, Hallelujah. For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor unto him. For the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, For the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. And he said unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said unto me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said to me, See thou, do it not. The angel says, Get up, don't worship me. I am your fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Verse 11 says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. Skip to verse 16, please. Verse 16 says, And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, Say it out loud with me, please, on both campuses. King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, by the way, we're going to talk about the return of Jesus, but I find it interesting that the return, the actual moment when heaven opens and Jesus begins his descent from heaven, returning to the earth, does not occur until chapter 19, verse 11. Do you see that? Verse 11, I saw heaven open. Now, by the way, the only other time that heaven opens in Revelation is in chapter 4, verse 1, where he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and behold, a a door in heaven was opened. So it opens in chapter 4, verse 1, and closes, as John is called up, and then it opens again, and Christ returns in chapter 19, verse 11. But in chapter 19, he, he returns in verse 11, however... Before he returns, heaven is already rejoicing. You see this beginning all the way back in verse number one where you have these hallelujahs. In fact, write this down somewhere in your notes. This text records for us the hallelujah chorus in heaven. The hallelujah chorus in heaven. Now, many of us are familiar with the hallelujah chorus Uh, that maybe we'll be hearing as we enter the Christmas season, some uh, great uh, choir perhaps presenting uh, Handel's Messiah and the Hallelujah Chorus in that piece of of music written by George Frederick Handel uh, back in the uh, 18th century, mid-1700s. Handel's Messiah was inspired by this passage. So the Hallelujah Chorus penned by Handel was in fact a hallelujah chorus that was occurring in heaven in the first place. Look at verse 1, verse 3, verse 4, 
and verse 6. In those four verses, you have repeated over and over uh, the word. It's in the, in, in the English text, alleluia, but it is pronounced the same as hallelujah. Uh, and this is, in fact, the only time in the entire New Testament where the word hallelujah is seen. These four instances are the only four instances, the only instances at all uh, in the New Testament. But the word hallelujah is a very biblical word. It comes from the Old Testament text, primarily in the book of Psalms, and from the Hebrew word hallelujah. And so hallelujah, interestingly, the English word hallelujah is a transliteration. It's pronounced the same way in English as it is in Hebrew. In fact, it's pronounced the same way all over the world. You could drop out of an airplane, land anywhere in the world, look at the first person you meet on the street, while you may not be able to say hello, how are you, where's the bathroom, tell me a good restaurant. You couldn't communicate any of those things. What you could say is hallelujah. And they would know exactly what you meant. Because in every language in the world, Hallelujah is the same. The word comes from this Hebrew phrase, Hallel, which means praise. U is ye or you. And Yah is the shortened version, the shortened word for Jehovah or Yahweh. Hallel, Uyah, praise ye the Lord. And what you'll find interesting is in the Old Testament book of Psalms, and we won't take time to turn now, uh, just because of time, but if you'll go later this afternoon to Psalm 146, make a note somewhere, Psalm 146 through Psalm 150. It's the last five chapters in the book of Psalms, the last five Psalms. These are called the Hallelujah Psalms, and they each begin and end. All five of these Psalms are bookended with this uh, command to praise the Lord. They all say in English, praise ye the Lord. But what they say in Hebrew, if you're reading it in the original text, each of those psalms begins, hallelujah, and ends, hallelujah. And in the midst, in the middle, are the actual content of the psalm. I have a friend who loves to begin, he doesn't love to do it, he always does it. It's not that he just likes to do it sometimes. Every time he bows his head to pray, he begins by saying, hallelujah, praise you, Lord, and then he begins his prayer. It's a pretty good way to begin our prayers. So heaven is filled with hallelujahs. Verse number one, they are shouting hallelujah. Verse three, hallelujah. Verse four, hallelujah. And verse six, hallelujah. Now let's talk about the hallelujahs, these four hallelujahs for just a minute. Notice uh, when these hallelujahs are being proclaimed. Now I, I would, I would, go ahead and, and admit that in all likelihood, and I'm certain that it's true, that hallelujahs are being proclaimed in heaven all the time. But the four hallelujahs specific to this text are proclaimed at a very specific moment. Look at it. Verse number one says this, and after these things, after these things, I heard a lot of people shouting hallelujah. So what are the things that have just concluded? What are the events that have just concluded that are prompting these shouts of hallelujah? Well, it's clearly the conclusion of the 
uh, events of Revelation 6 through Revelation 18. These are the events of the tribulation. We spent a couple of weeks in our study talking about the tribulation and the Antichrist and the false prophet and all that's going on uh, in the world. And so after that comes to a close, at the conclusion of really seven years of wrath being poured out on the earth and seven years of, of ravaging war and seven years in which literally uh, more than a third, the Bible says, of the earth's population have died from disease and war and even from uh, wild beasts or animals. Um, after seven years of the tyrannical rule of the Antichrist, after seven years of deception, as the world really lies in ashes, there, there suddenly begins to resonate from heaven this hallelujah. Suddenly from heaven you begin to hear these shouts of hallelujah. It happens at the close of the tribulation after these things which conclude in chapter 18. And then chapter 19 also speaks to us about who it is that's shouting hallelujah. Now, by the way, is hallelujah a word that you use very often? Probably not, right? I mean, you wouldn't use it except maybe in your prayer life, perhaps in your, your own personal worship time, maybe sometime in church, you know, somebody will uh, sing a song or maybe you'll hear something in the text from the scriptures, you'll go, man, hallelujah. But you don't say it a lot. It's not a word we use a lot. I want you to practice it, okay? Because you may be thinking, um, you know, when I get to heaven, I'm a very refined person. I'm a, I like to maintain my dignity. And when I get to heaven, I'm just probably not going to get all excited like all those, those other uh, kind of half-crazed Christians. And so I'll just say like, amen, praise the Lord. But hallelujah, I won't say hallelujah. That's a, an undignified word. Well, I want you to practice because by the time we get to the end of Revelation 19, not only are you going to know you're going to say hallelujah if you're there, but you're going to want to say it when you're there, all right? So you probably don't want to be learning hooked on phonics in heaven. Let's practice here, all right? So it's four syllables. I know it's a big word for some of us. It's hallelujah. Say it with me. Both campuses, hallelujah. Now shout it, hallelujah. There you go, hallelujah. Who is it in heaven that's shouting hallelujah? Well, actually, several groups. Look at what verse number one says. It says, there are many people. After these things, I heard the voice of many people in heaven shouting hallelujah. It means a great multitude. Now, it's a very specific multitude. And who are they? Verse number one is recording the hallelujahs of the tribulation saints. This, this is the group of people who have arrived in heaven out of the tribulation. That is, they, they were saved during the days of the tribulation. And then because of their faith in Jesus, because of their refusal to receive the mark of the beast, which we talked about, they have been martyred for their faith and now they've arrived in heaven. Uh, we, uh, we see them. Let me turn back. You're welcome to go with me if you'd like. Back to chapter 6. Uh, when we came through chapter 6, we talked about this group of martyrs uh, just a bit. Look at Revelation chapter 6 verse 9. These are uh, words written in the beginning of the tribulation, in the early days of the tribulation. 
It says, when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they hailed. These are tribulation saints. They trusted in Jesus as their Savior. Now they're martyred for that. Their, their souls arrive in heaven. And verse 10 of chapter 6 says, They cry aloud, say, O long, how long, O Lord, holy and true, uh, do you not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given to them, and they were told that they should wait for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were until that should be fulfilled. Now, here's the point. Early in the tribulation, as people are beginning to, to be martyred for their faith, they're in heaven saying, Lord, are you going to avenge our blood? And they're told that they must wait because many more, many more martyrs will die during the tribulation period. Again, these are not raptured saints. These are not, these are not Christians who go into the tribulation. Uh, these are folks who come to Christ after the rapture, and now they're dying or being martyred during the tribulation. Look at chapter 17. When you come to chapter 17, you're at the very end of the tribulation period. And look at what chapter 17 and verse number 6 says. Revelation 17, 6 says, And I saw the woman, we'll talk about her in a minute, I saw the woman who was drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So what you're learning is that in the early days of the tribulation, chapter 6, now the martyrs are just beginning to die. Over the course of the tribulation, many, many millions of them are martyred. So that by the time you come to chapter 17, the woman, we'll talk about her in a minute, this woman is said to have now, by the end of these seven years, become drunk on, on blood. So many martyrs have died that she has become drunk on their blood. So in chapter number 19, this group of people who are shouting hallelujah is that group of saints who have been killed during the tribulation. Now, how do we know that? How, how, how can we infer that really uh, clearly? We know it because of why they are shouting hallelujah. We'll get to it in a second. But we'll, we'll talk about why it is that they're shouting hallelujah. There's a second group, though, back in nine, chapter 19. There's a second group shouting hallelujah. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, not only did this group of many people shout hallelujah in verse 1, but in verse 4, a second group who are known as, or identified as the 24 elders, they begin to shout hallelujah. Now, if you go all the way back to chapter 4, I think in our first or second week in our study, we learned who the 24 elders are. The 24 elders in Revelation are the raptured church. That's us. So we're in heaven at the beginning of the tribulation, just even before it begins, with the rapture of the church identified as these 24 elders. I'm not going to re-preach it. We learned that way back in chapter number 4. So that's us, the 24 elders. And then verse 4 says, a third group is shouting hallelujah. These are the four beasts. Now, the King James uses the word beast. That's kind of a scary word. It's living creatures. These are angels or seraphim, special angels created for one purpose, which was to shout uh, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. We learned of them in chapter 4 and verse number 8. They fly around the, the throne of God continually shouting holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So what you have in chapter number 19 is this, this shout of hallelujah in verse 1 
from the martyred saints. Then in verse 4, the church joins in shouting hallelujah. Verse 4, the living creatures join in shouting hallelujah. In fact, look at verse number 4. And the 24 elders and the four beasts fell down and worshiped God that sat on the throne saying, we didn't just say, and those four living creatures didn't just say hallelujah, but we say amen, hallelujah. Now, by the way, that ought to be instructive to you in church. You ought to be an amener, amen? Amen. <laughs> amen. Have you ever heard of the amen corner? Well, there is no amen corner at, uh, at Brookstone. We are the amen corner because the word amen is a word of agreement. It's a word to say, let it be so, or to shout, I agree. So what you have happening in verse number four is this. All of these martyred saints who now have uh, who have arrived in heaven and they're shouting hallelujah for the goodness of God to them. And the church now watching them praise God, watching them praise the Lord, the church is motivated by their praise. And then the angels, the seraphim, are motivated by the praise of the tribulation saints and the church. So it would go like this. In this section or on one side of the uh, worship center at the Merriman campus, someone would say, Hallelujah. Let's do it. Go with us at Merriman. All of you to my left, shout hallelujah. That's bad. Do it. Hallelujah. And now all of you to my right, you just heard them say hallelujah, so you should say amen. amen. And all of you in the middle should now say hallelujah. hallelujah. Here we go. Hallelujah. Amen. Hallelujah. Amen. Hallelujah. Amen. You got it going on. And I'm sure it's happening at Merriman as well. But the, the point of all of that is simply to say that the praise, listen to me, the praise of one ought to inspire the praise of another. And when one person raises a hand and says, amen, another should say hallelujah. And we, rather than sometimes in church, not here, but in some churches, I'm sure it happens, somebody praises the Lord and others go, what are they doing? Why are they making that noise? Why, why is their hand raised? Why would they say no, we shouldn't do it that way. When we see one person praising, we ought to join with them in praise. That's what's happening in heaven anyway. It's instructive for us. So the tribulation saints are shouting hallelujah, and then the church and the seraphim join in shouting hallelujah as well. Well, then you have the fourth hallelujah in verse number five, and this is in response to a command. It says, and a voice came out of the throne saying, praise our God, all ye his servants, ye that fear him, both small and great, and I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, the voice of many waters and the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. So first of all, you have the tribulation saints, joined by the church, then joined by those four seraphim. And now, in verses 5 and 6, every creature in heaven is commanded to praise the Lord. Uh, this, this is including all of the innumerable host of angels. This is the Old Testament saints. This is everybody that's in heaven now together. So many, so many people, so many angels, such an innumerable host that John says it sounded like Niagara Falls, man. It, it sounded like waves crashing on the sea. It, it sounded like thunder rocking the skies. So many people were shouting, hallelujah, hallelujah. Hallelujah. 
This is what the praise of heaven sounds like. Now, I promised you that we would talk for just a minute about why it is that they are shouting hallelujah. Go back up to verses number two and three. Why are these tribulation saints shouting in verse one, hallelujah? Here's why. Verse two says, this is what they're saying, hallelujah, salvation, glory, honor, power belong to God. Why? For true and righteous are his judgments. Stop right there. They're shouting hallelujah because of the judgment of God. Because of the judgment that has been pouring out all the way up to chapter number 18. For true and righteous are his judgments. Who has he judged? Verse 2. For he has judged the great harlot. This is the great harlot which did corrupt the earth with her fornication. And hath, he has avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. So in chapter number 19, verse number uh, one and two, you have people who have been slaughtered for their faith, martyrs who have died. In fact, the Bible says many of them beheaded for their faith. They have died for their faith in Jesus. Now they're in heaven praising God because he has judged that empire that has been reigning on the earth and that had put the sword to their neck. Who is, verse two, who is the great whore, as the King James says, or the great harlot. Well, this is not a person at all, but rather this is that political and religious empire of the Antichrist and the false prophet. It is that entire religious and political system which has been reigning on the earth for the last seven years and at whose hand all of these Christians through the tribulation have been martyred. This harlot is described in great detail in chapter number 17. We read a couple of verses a moment ago. Chapter 17 speaks of how she is drunk on the blood of the martyrs, how that she rules with violence and with greed and with lust and with tyranny. And the Bible talks in chapter 18 of how this empire is seated, is its capital is in a city called Babylon. Now the truth is we don't know if this is an actual city named Babylon or if Babylon is just a symbolic name for the capital of the empire of the Antichrist. I mean, the same way we would say Raleigh's the capital of North Carolina, Washington, D.C., the capital of, uh, of the United States. Every empire has a capital. Well, the empire of the beast has a capital. And in the Bible, it's called Babylon. And in chapter number 18, Babylon, the empire of the beast, is destroyed utterly uh, destroyed. And because it has been destroyed, this empire which has wreaked such havoc in the world, because it has been destroyed, then there is great celebration in heaven. That's the reason they say in verse number two, hallelujah, you have judged this great harlot. Hallelujah, you have judged this system, this political and religious system, which did corrupt the earth uh, with her fornication. Hallelujah, you have judged the one uh, who uh, shed our blood and you have avenged our blood. Remember chapter 6 and verse 11? Uh, How long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? Well, that, av- that vengeance takes place in chapter 18 and is celebrated in chapter number 19. So what you have in heaven are these, are these saints rejoicing that the enemy has been defeated and now surely will be judged. It's no different than if you had a murderous criminal 
come into your home during the night. And, and in your home, you're spread out in different bedrooms or places, and this criminal is going from one room to another, uh, uh, terrorizing and killing, and, and, and you, would, you would hope someone that the police would come and, and they, would, they would deliver you from this, this enemy that had invaded your home, and to be sure, when that enemy would be taken out, you know, when, when, the, when the police would fire and, and, and slay that enemy, you wouldn't stand there and say, well, it's really, I just really hate that. No, you'd go, yes, thank you. You've, you've saved us. You've delivered us. It's exactly what's happening in Revelation. That this enemy has been destroyed and now they are shouting hallelujah because the one who caused them to suffer has been defeated and now suffering is over. And by the way, speaking of suffering, I, I, I recognize that in this world, in the Narnia that we live in, we all know what it is to suffer, some more than others. And I want you to know that if you are enduring suffering, there is a height of praise that can only be known after going through the valley of suffering. Those who have never suffered deeply can never praise with the same level of celebration as those who have been carried through the deep, dark valleys of suffering. And so these who have suffered so deeply are now rejoicing so jubilantly. Well, they're also rejoicing in verse number uh, four, uh, because the Lord our God reigns. Do you see this? Look at verse four, five, and six. Look at verse five, I heard, or verse six rather, I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude, the voice of many waters, and the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Now, what they're praising him for in heaven is not only that the enemy has been defeated and now will be judged, but for the fact that he is taking possession of the earth. He is reigning now, he's, he's coming to reign on the earth. Now, by the way, God has always reigned from his throne, right? And we talked last week about the kingdom and Jesus reigns from the throne in heaven. But what they're celebrating in chapter 19 is the fact that Jesus is coming to the earth to reign over all the earth. Even though, as the old hymn says, this is our father's world, there is a limited and leashed and temporary God of this world who is ruling in this world now. Galatians uh, tells us this. I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 4 uh, says this. That Satan is the God of this world. Ephesians chapter 2 calls him the prince of the power of the air. Have you ever considered the fact that in Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus is tempted by the devil and Satan says to him, bow down to me and I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. It was an authentic offer. How could Satan offer to Jesus the kingdoms of the world if he does not possess the kingdoms of the world? He is the temporary and the limited God of this world. But what is being celebrated in chapter 19 is that Jesus is coming and that he will reign, verse number six, the Lord God who is all-powerful, omnipotent, is coming to reign. Who's shouting hallelujah? Well, the tribulation saints and the church and the seraphim and the angels and the Old Testament saints, everything in heaven is shouting hallelujah. Why? Because the, the enemy has been defeated and will be judged and because Christ is coming again. 
to reign. Now, there's a, there's a, a third and final reason that all of heaven is shouting hallelujah. Look at verse number 7. Verse 6 says, hallelujah, for he reigns. Verse 7, let us be glad and rejoice. Let us give honor to him. Why? For the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. Hallelujah, the marriage of the lamb has come. Now, by the way, you know immediately who this is talking about, don't you? We know that the lamb of God, if you know who the Lamb of God is, shout his name. It's Jesus, Jesus, right, it's Jesus. So the Lamb is Jesus. Who is Jesus uh, married to or engaged to and will one day be fully united in an eternal, perfect marriage union? It's the church, the bride of Christ. It's us and our brothers and sisters all over the world. The bride, the church is the bride of Christ. The Bible says this over and over Again, 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 2, they'll put on the screen for you, says, Paul writing, for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I have engaged you or betrothed you to one husband. I want to present you as a pure virgin to Christ, speaking to the church. Again, for the sake of time, we won't turn, but Ephesians 5, go read it later. Ephesians 5 draws this beautiful picture of Christ and his relationship with us as illustrated most perfectly in the earthly relationship of a husband and his wife. We are uh, united with Christ in marriage. And so they shout hallelujah because the enemy has been defeated and will now be judged and because Jesus is coming to take possession and to reign in the earth and because, verse 6 and 7, the marriage of the Lamb has come. Now, by the way, there are two reasons verse 7 says we should rejoice and be glad and give honor to him. Look at them. Here's the first reason. For the marriage of the lamb has come. And secondly, his wife has made herself ready. Now, I want you to listen to me very, very carefully. His wife has made herself ready. Have you ever known a bride that did not prepare for her wedding day? Ever? No, every bride prepares for her wedding day. And if I say to you, you are part of the bride of Christ, then you should be preparing for the day when our great union with Christ will be complete. And how do we prepare? We prepare by surrendering and submitting to the Holy Spirit who lives within us, who is sanctifying us, making our lives sanctified so that we will be ready to meet our Lord. We are getting ready today for the wedding. Now, by the way, if you're not getting ready, start getting ready. When our girls got married, we didn't have to nudge them and say, hey, it's, you know, the wedding's going to be here in a few minutes. Get dressed. They were getting ready early. Let me encourage some of you. You're part of the bride, but you haven't been getting ready for the wedding. You need to start because Jesus could come at any minute. Start surrendering to the Lord. Recommit your life to Jesus. Die to yourself. Start following Christ as you should. So we, we, we surrender to the Holy Spirit. He gets us ready. But here's the thing. Do you know this to be true? That none of us will be completely ready until we stand before him, will we? Because as much as we surrender, we're, all, we're still in a human body. We're still fleshly. We still struggle and falter and fail. We still sin. And so we want to ultimately be completely ready. And how will that completeness be effected? At an event, if y'all are listening, both campuses, shout amen. At an event, the Bible calls the judgment seat of Christ. 
where when we stand before the Lord, saved to be sure, righteous by his grace to be sure, but still not, not, not fully, completely sanctified yet, at the judgment seat of Christ, we will be cleansed. Don't, don't view the judgment seat of Christ as this horrible thing where you're going to suffer But view it as this moment where Christ is preparing you for the wedding. What is un or incomplete before I see him will be complete at the judgment seat. And by the time Revelation 19 comes, Jim Dykes will be completely, absolutely, perfectly ready. And people will look at me and go, dude, I can't believe how good you look. You're ready for the wedding. And it'll be the grace of God that will have taken a dirty, rotten, vile, stained, limping, crippled, broken sinner and will make me perfectly right and robed in a spotless, whiteless gown, ready to be married to my Christ forever and the whole church will be as well. It is that preparation, his bride, his wife has made herself ready. And then when everything is ready, when when the tribulation is over and and the enemy, the great harlot, has been crushed. And, and Christ is ready to come. And, and the bride has been prepared. And we're ready for that marriage supper. Then write this down somewhere in your notes. In that moment, and not until that moment, but in that exact moment, the king will return. And it will be a wedding march like you've never heard before in your life. The king will return Verse 11, heaven will open, Jesus will come. Verse number 16, he has a name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, last week we talked about the Battle of Armageddon, which is described in these verses. I'm not going to go there again today. And all God's people said amen. That's not fun. Last week we talked about that, though. Today I just want you to notice in closing in in these verses, the regal entry of the king. Verse number 11, I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. Look what the Bible says in uh, verse number 16, he has a name written king of kings and lord of lords. Look what verse 12 says, he is crowned with many crowns. What a regal, royal entrance is the return of the king. And I want you to compare it with the last time that Jesus rode into Jerusalem 2,000 years ago on the Sunday before his crucifixion, on Palm Sunday we call it. He rode into Jerusalem on that day, not on a white stallion, but on a little young foal of a donkey, humble scene, his feet probably dragging the ground. On that day, he presented himself as king, and they crowned him as king. But not with many crowns, but with one crown, a crown of thorns. On that day, he presented himself as king, but not king of all kings and king and lord of all lords, but as the king of the Jews. And they rejected him and said, we have no king but Caesar. The first time he rode into Jerusalem, he rode in humility with a crown of thorns to be put upon his head and rejected. But the second time that he comes, if you're listening, say amen. Amen. No donkey this time. 
No feet dragging the ground this time. No humility this time. A white stallion, the victor's stallion. No crown of thorns piercing his brow now with blood streaming down his face, but the royal diadem of all the nations placed upon his brow, the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. And in that day, not to be rejected to have it said, we have no king but Caesar, but on that day, Isaiah 9, 6 says he will be received and they will say he is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, and the prince of peace. That entry will be different from his previous entry. And so imagine this. You've got on the earth a couple of groups of people ready to receive him. Those tribulation saints that didn't get martyred, they live to the end. They're ready for Jesus to come. Those that persecuted Israel, who have been persecuted by the Antichrist, looking for their Messiah, they're waiting. And here he comes, Christ from the sky. On a white. If you believe your Bible, shout amen. amen. Christ coming from the sky. And, and along with him, his bride robed in white. Revelation 19, the armies which are in heaven. Coming with him, the church. And re, uh, resounding out of the heavens. When the, when the door in heaven opens, you hear these hallelujahs coming from heaven. As they're shouting hallelujahs in heaven. And these martyred and beaten and battered saints. And the Jews looking up from the earth see him coming. Hallelujahs rising. Hallelujahs descending. Hallelujahs us sending to welcome Christ, the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. Jesus is coming again as the King. In fact, in your handbook, let's close by writing this down, and I hope you'll do this. The entire world will see Jesus as their glorious King, and in that moment, Israel will receive him as their true Messiah. We've talked about that. Here's my prayer it is that you will receive him as your true Messiah, as your Savior today. Let's pray.